You know, Universal is begging me for this script, but I don't want to give it to them because they screwed me once. You really ought to take a look at it. Yeah, take a look at it. Yeah. All right. Gotcha, suckers. Wow, that is a catchphrase. Isn't that good? I, I just saw the poster. Let's be risky today, huh? I'm gonna go with this. You know what? You bring me this script and Kit Ramsey, and you got yourself a go picture, Bobby. A washed up producer tries to make an action movie with a star who doesn't realize he's being filmed. Special guest Darren from the Board Games Are for Losers podcast joins us to discuss jokes about smashing pumpkins, using French to make bullshit sound impressive, and we just may open ourselves up to lawsuits from Hollywood institutions. Then we find out if 1999's Bowfinger stands the test of time. James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Allen says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time. My name is Alan Noah, and we have a very special episode today because I am joined by two good friends of mine from back in the day. Do people say that anymore? No. Nope. Well, no, I don't think so. Well, first is my co-host. Hi, I'm James Brief, and back in the day, people said back in the day, but I think you could still say it. Okay. And our friend... Back on the show for the seventh time is Darren from the Board Games Are For Losers podcast. Welcome back, Darren. Thank you guys for having me back. I've literally been begging you for like three years to come back. You kept on blaming the pandemic, but finally, I think that's over, right? I don't know if they've officially said it's over. Eh, whatever. It's over for us. <laughs> okay. Well, you were on the show during the pandemic. That's true. I forgot about that. Oh, I'm glad it was meaningful <laughs> to you, jerk. I'm a little offended. But, like, it was fun that we did that. It was great yes. seeing you, and it was great talking with you about movies, because that's always a good time. But now, the three of us are together in the same room for the first time in God knows how long. It has to be three, four years at this point. Probably. And before we started recording, you said that you didn't remember all of the movies you've done on the podcast. Also offensive. Well, clearly, I didn't remember the two that we did remotely during the pandemic. I actually remembered those movies. So that was Eight Mile mm -hmm. and White Man Can't Jump. Uh -huh. That was part of my aborted uh, White Men Shouldn't Do This trilogy. <laughs> I think I just made up right now. Okay. Okay. That was two of them. Right. I obviously did The Rock. Right. Famously, which is the worst decision you've ever made in podcasting. Uh, allowing you on the show? <laughs> yes. Okay. I did The Saint. Uh-huh. That was also during COVID. So I really did podcast a lot with you during the pandemic. I'm sorry. I take back my earlier statement. No, it was great fun. Naked Gun. Oh, Al, do you want to correct him there? Colon from the po Files of Police Squad. Al, do you want to correct him there? Yes. From the files of Police Squad. <laughs> There's an exclamation point at the end. <laughs> Damn it. I'm always saying this because Al is correcting me on this many times. Fair enough. I feel like I've heard him say that. Uh, ooh, number six. <sighs> Help me out here. Um, if something isn't a square... Circle the Wagons. That's not a real movie. Um, it's a game that Darren recommended for me. Oh, it is. Very good. I do own it. Nice. Well, there you go. Uh, but circles are... Shapes. Yes. And those shapes are... Shape of You by Ed Sheeran. Rounders. Yes. There okay. you go. Okay. That was the one I'm forgetting now. I'm also forgetting the other one that I remembered before. So we need number seven. Well, Round. the seven was Bowfinger today. Oh. <laughs> I can do math. There you this go. This is terrible. I should leave. And you said you have a podcast of your own? Yeah, but we don't record a lot, so I'm a little rusty. Okay, well, I'm glad you're workshopping how to podcast with us. Thanks, Darren. <laughs> I can say this. We've been friends for decades, so it's okay. And you and I hung out a couple weeks ago, maybe, something like that. And you were asking about coming back on the show and you picked Bowfinger. And I was happy to have you come on to talk about Bowfinger, 
but there was an asterisk because I try to be really good and try to keep detailed notes because I don't remember stuff. And I have a Google Doc with any time anyone's ever requested a movie ever. And our friend Mailer had also requested Bowfinger, I think many, many, many years ago. But we checked with him and he said it was okay for you to do this episode. I am feeling a lot of pressure though. Mailer's awesome, but you're awesome too. So I think you're going to nail it. I think it's going to be okay. I'm already off to a stellar start. (laughs) Debatable. But what's your relationship with Bowfinger? There's no special meaning behind it. I just remember seeing it. Must have been in college for the first time. I don't think I saw it in the theaters. I just remember watching it a couple times, maybe with Mailer. Of course, if I'm wrong, he will definitely correct me publicly. Uh, (laughs) But I just remember liking it, a funny comedy. And and that was it. And I was kind of wanted to do a movie that I didn't have a very strong attraction to or connection to, just to see if it stands the test of time. Oh, that's the name of the podcast. <laughs> that That is correct. Yeah, thank you for the shout out. So, James, had you seen this movie before? I had. Uh, it came out in uh, December, uh, December 13th, 1999. And I did not see it in the theater because I was not in the country at that time. But I, I'd seen it maybe once before. I remember the premise of the film, but I haven't seen this film in easily 15 years. Yeah, I saw it once as well. I think it was a rental. I remembered Chubby Rain and like really nothing else other than I remembered liking it. And then as I was watching it, more things started clicking of like, oh yeah, I remember that. But uh, this is only, I believe, the second movie we've done on the podcast with Eddie Murphy, which is a shame and we have way more to do. Uh, We did Coming to America with our friend Amita Patel. I think that was it. Am I forgetting something? Um, no, I don't believe you are. I think he's doing another Beverly Hills Cop, so maybe we can go back and rewatch those when the new one comes out. Or maybe it's a series he's doing. It's changed over the years what it's going to be. Right, right, right. And I think I remember when we did Coming to America, it was like, oh, but he said he's going to make a sequel, so maybe we should wait. Nah, he's not really going to make a sequel. He's been talking about that for years, and then he actually did. So you never know, but... James, why don't you tell us about the movie Bowfinger for people who don't remember? Sure. Uh, this movie is about a down-on-his-luck filmmaker named Bobby Bowfinger, played by Steve Martin. And this is the kind of guy who can't get a film made. And then he comes across a screenplay that he thinks could be a blockbuster. So he tries to recruit a movie star named Kit Ramsey, played by Eddie Murphy. Kit isn't interested, so Bowfinger decides to make the film without Kit knowing he's in the film. Meanwhile, Kit is struggling with his own mental health, and he believes that aliens are trying to communicate with him, and the strangers running up to him and saying random lines, that's not helping. Will Bowfinger's plan work, and will he be able to create his masterpiece, Chubby Rain? So when this movie came out in 1999, when you were in a country that didn't have movie theaters, apparently, (laughs) was it a big hit? Well, I, had, I was in a country that uh, the movies came out like six months later. Oh, I assumed it was a country that just didn't have them. No, that's incorrect. Um, the movie did come out on uh, December 13th, 1999. It had a big budget. It had a $55 million budget. And I'll bet a good amount of that went to Eddie Murphy. This, you know, He's top of his game right here. And uh, you know, I had shown you guys the trailer for this film because... I vaguely remember seeing the trailer. It was not enough to entice me to see this film. It didn't really entice many people to see it. It opened at number two, probably would have opened at number one if a surprise blockbuster from 1999 didn't come in number one. What's the surprise blockbuster? Launched a director's career, relaunched an action star's career. I can't play because I know I looked it up. Oh, I'm so bad at this. Give me a more clues okay it was a director's debut film okay it wound up actually being nominated for best picture this is not helping titanic it was (laughs) you could call it in the horror genre nope still doesn't help there was a twist ending oh the sixth sense there you go Ah, all that other stuff you didn't need to say you just need to say (laughs) twist ending sixth sense that's pretty easy if I had just said that. Right, I don't watch a lot of movies. He was guessing for 37 <laughs> minutes, James. We needed to nudge him along. I get it, I get it. But the reason I uh, mentioned the trailer is because this film, it opened at number two, $18 million. 
but it didn't really uh, make that much money. It made $65 million domestically and $98 million worldwide. I think that this film is funnier than a $66 million film. However, having shown you the trailer, all it does is tell you that Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin are in this film. It was terrible. Half of the trailer was the Kung Fu movie at the end. It did not feature the funny lines in context at all. I mean, it's the kind of trailer that just doesn't draw you in. I'm shocked at how uh, bad that trailer was. The only argument I could make for why they went with the trailer like that is because I can imagine that a movie about movies could have a limited appeal, at least in theory, right? Like if you make a movie about movies, everyone in Hollywood and the entertainment industry is going to love it. But... For people in Nebraska, are they going to be able to connect to it? And I think this movie does work, even if you're not well-steeped in Hollywood culture, but I could imagine someone being nervous about that and just saying, eh, let's not put any of that stuff in the trailer. I don't think that was the right decision. I'm just saying I could understand why someone would come to that decision. I completely disagree because I think you're basically underestimating the intelligence of the movie going public. I think the premise is really clever. It's really original. It's not a movie about a movie. It's a movie where the guy doesn't know he's in a movie. Eddie Murphy is hysterical when he's freaking out and you could very easily understand the premise of this film. Instead, they show a lot of parts of the film in the trailer that they actually are pretty funny, but only in the context of the film. I hate to agree with James. <laughs> I know the feeling. That's all I have to say. No, I, okay. First of all, you're you're really hitting Nebraska pretty hard here. But um, I, I just mentioned it once. I think James is absolutely right. The the catch to this movie, the hook to the movie, is you're filming a guy who doesn't know he's in a movie, and it's Eddie Murphy, and it's funny. You wouldn't have known that was the premise. You wouldn't have any idea from that trailer. And this is post Truman Show which I don't think is a similar movie, but based on that tagline does sound similar, right? You know, it's a movie about a guy who's in a TV show, but he doesn't know he's in a TV show. So audiences would be somewhat familiar with that type of concept. You're exactly right, Al. They could kind of say it's sort of the Truman Show, but Eddie Murphy doesn't realize he's in a movie. And I think this movie was marketed poorly because right from the beginning of this film, I think it's uh, funny right from the get-go. Having done uh, hundreds of episodes with you, Al, I I've learned to appreciate uh, that in this film, there is no voiceover, whereas I think this film filmed by a lesser filmmaker would have put a voiceover and say like, hi, I'm Bobby Bowfinger. I'm a big loser Hollywood filmmaker. I can't get a film made. And you would be arguing, just show this to us. And as the film opens, there's an answering machine message about late bills. You get it very quickly. And I, I did appreciate that about the uh, screenplay and the film. Well, I feel totally vindicated that you said that because, yes, the number one rule of storytelling, this isn't an Alan Noah rule, this is like storytelling in general, is show, don't tell. And, yeah, this movie does a great job of showing you things instead of telling you things exactly like you're describing. I will point out that this movie does kind of contain voiceover, not Bowfinger, but Chubby Rain, the movie within the movie that is supposed to be a terrible movie. That movie opens with voiceover, which I also felt vindicated by because they're making fun of a stupid movie and it begins with the aliens were coming and the guy drove up in his 53 Buick. What was the rain? Chubby Rain? Like it's all exposition in voiceover and it's making fun of movies that do that. Because it's dumb. Also, you said that this movie has a smart script. It was written by Steve Martin, who's a great writer. Who's a genius. Yes. He is an American treasure. You're, you're absolutely right. I made that note, too, that they had voiceover in the crappy movie within the movie. I didn't want to point it out because I don't want you to think you're right, Al. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you don't want to point out that either of us are right or agree with either of us. I think when w once that opening scene goes by and you see Bofinger has this... Uh, script that he thinks is amazing by his accountant. I think his accountant wrote yes. it. And he goes and he sets up a meeting, quote unquote, with his big Hollywood producer, 
who was that guy? That was uh, Robert, Robert Downey, Downey Jr. Jr. Right, right. Robert Downey Jr. is playing the guy. And he tries to get him to read the script. And he tells Bowfinger, look, if you can get me Kit Ramsey, the big action star, I'll make this movie. And that sets off kind of the plot of, of the whole entire film. But he's not serious. He's not actually going to make the movie. He knows that Bowfinger is full of shit. Right. And I think Bowfinger is naive in a sense. He's a scam artist, but he's kind of that sweet scam artist. He's naive and thinks, okay, if I can get this, this guy will make this movie. He almost believes him. James, you look perplexed. You, you thought that Robert Downey Jr. really was going to bankroll the movie? I'm not sure that uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character uh, was actually serious about it. And the reason he knows that Bowfinger's a con artist is because he's uh, trying to fake that he has a cell phone, which in 1999 means you're a big rich guy. And he had ripped the car phone out of the car, so he's still dangling the cord, and that's what gives it away. However, the one thing that gives me pause is the conversation that Robert Downey Jr. was uh, was having before Bowfinger interrupts them. He mentions Kit Ramsey, and he's like, he's the biggest star in Hollywood. Like, no one can get him. And then this asshole is like, oh, hey, I'm such a fake big shot. I think this guy is almost like, all right, dude, if you can get Kit Ramsey, sure, I'll bankroll this film. I think he knows it's bullshit, but I think he's kind of sending him on a fool's errand because, like, there's no bad side for the, for Robert Downey Jr. Either he gets him the biggest star in Hollywood or he never sees the guy again. I'm going to nitpick semantics. Sorry in advance. But it's not bankroll the movie. It's distribute the movie, which... I think proves your point even more so where there's no downside. He doesn't have to pay for the movie. He'll just distribute a movie that's already been made. And he's not giving Bowfinger any money. Bowfinger has $2,000 in a chest, which he says, you know, that's how much all movies cost. You know, it doesn't really cost millions of dollars. That's just inflated. I still think that Robert Downey Jr. knew he was full of shit and was just like fucking with the guy kind of just to be cruel. A little bit, but I also want to give credit. Uh, I give credit to any uh, casting person pre-Iron Man and post-Robert Downey Jr.'s troubles that was like, we have a small role. There's a guy that will nail this. He's in like, like one day of filming. You know, you got to get Robert Downey Jr. And he's so good in, in his small role. That was a good cameo. And that leads right in after that fake quote-unquote meeting leads right into the my favorite scene of the movie has to be when we get introduced to Kit Ramsey when he's in his uh, mansion he's meeting with his agent this is the line I remembered from this movie for sure I remember a couple of lines but Kit Ramsey um, played by Eddie Murphy he's complaining to his agent about basically as a black actor he's not getting any respect and he's not getting the roles the action movie roles and he's reading this script and he says hey I did the math on this script the letter K appears in here 1,468 times. And he's like, and what does that mean? He's like, well, that means the word KKK appears in here 468 times. And then everybody in the room turns and looks at this white, nerdy, probably Jewish agent. And is like, what? You gave him a script with KKK in it? I absolutely love that line. It's ridiculous. And then um, why don't I play the clip here? Because the agent says, look, it's, it's not Shakespeare, okay, Kit? <laughs> I love Kit's assistant. And he's like, you know what they're doing here? He's like, yeah, yeah, I know what they're doing here. Wait, wait, what are they doing there? What, are we, <laughs> what, exactly. what, what, what is he doing? It's so great. Because Kit is crazy. That, that's something you, you do learn as the film is going on. Well, he has mental health issues. He really does. Yes. And you never really know. But it really seems to me like Eddie Murphy is having a fucking blast playing this character. And then later in the movie, these characters. But he's just having so much fun. And this stuff that he's saying about KKK and Shakespeare, that's out there. But then later he goes on a rant about how black actors don't win Oscars unless they play a slave and a white actor will get nominated for just playing an idiot. And he's not wrong. Hashtag Oscar so white was trending a couple years ago, but like many, many years after Eddie Murphy was saying this. 
So there's some truth in there. And he's definitely an out there personality, but also occasionally he makes some good points. And just the entire time, I just like watching this guy. Yeah, apparently uh, Eddie Murphy filmed his scenes in a short eight-week window that he had between filming Life and uh, Nutty Professor 2, colon, The Clumps. And I think you're right. I think this one was like, you know what? I finally get to work with my friend Steve. It's a good script. And you're right. He gets to play, once again, he gets to play two roles. He gets to play a crazy eccentric version of whatever actor he wants to portray. You know, this is definitely a little bit of somebody or somebodies. And then he also gets to play Kit's brother, Jeff, who we don't know is his brother till later in the film. But he is the complete opposite, a character that Eddie can just kind of make up on, uh, on his own. And Eddie Murphy's the king of doing multiple characters. And what's interesting about this one is he does the two different characters, but they never interact, right? Or, or am I wrong about that? There's one scene at the very end. I think they're both at the premiere together laughing, I think, next to each other. Yes. Okay. It's very minimal, though. And in the other movies, right, they interact. He has more of like coming to America where he's all the different characters in the same scene. I feel like Eddie Murphy only playing two roles, that seems like a low number, right? Like in Coming to America, he plays more than that. In The Nutty Professors, he's six or seven, I think. Like, it's a lot. I feel like two roles in one movie is like, eh, that's nothing for him. I think in this movie, he's 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 obviously not the main character. Steve Martin is the main character. I could argue even the other actors um, who we haven't talked about yet are really more of the main characters. Eddie Murphy's characters are kind of a side Story. I mean, they drive the story, obviously, but they're not really the feature players. That's fair. And, you know, Heather Graham and Christine Baranski and I guess Jamie Kennedy to a lesser extent, you know those names. But some of those other actors are people like I didn't recognize. Like the guy who plays Slater, who is like one of the main leads in Chubby Rain. It's an actor named Cole Seduth. I might be saying that wrong. I didn't recognize him from anything did you no in his imdb does it have chubby rain as a movie that he was in (laughs) and honestly even uh afram who's the accountant who writes chubby rain i think he's great in this movie i don't recognize that guy from anything else which is a shame because i think both of those actors are good in this movie but yeah they just haven't really broken through i guess yeah, they casted these roles, these minor roles, very well. But certainly, you know, it's Eddie Murphy and uh, Steve Martin who are driving this film. Right, right. Daisy, uh, played by Heather Graham, she has some of the best lines in this movie, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, she really is just very, very funny. Whenever I hear a Smashing Pumpkins joke, <laughs> I immediately think of The Simpsons when Homer meets Billy Corgan and Billy Corgan says, hi, I'm Billy Corgan, Smashing Pumpkins. And Homer says, I'm Homer Simpson, smiling politely. That's one of my all-time favorite Simpsons jokes. But there's a similar kind of thing in this movie when Daisy is on a date with uh, Bowfinger and she asks him, do you like Smashing Pumpkins? And he says, yes, I love to do that. Because obviously he doesn't know that it's a band and it's funny because Smashing Pumpkins is a weird name for a band when you think about it. Um, But just her character as this ingenue who's completely willing to sleep with every single person on set to get more screen time, to get what she wants out of her career, you just buy it. Absolutely. I think she was cast great. I mean, I don't think she's the best actress, but I think she does exactly what she needs to do in this role. She's that innocent-looking Midwestern girl who gets off the bus and literally walks into the Bowfinger International Studios. And I love the line when she's uh, uh, auditioning with Slater. They do that makeout scene. And this is perfect Steve Martin. He's like, that was great. Uh, Can we do that again in uh, Slater this time without the erection, please? (laughs) (laughs) Just delivered so matter-of-factly and so perfectly. But then, right, there's an ongoing thing with Daisy that she sleeps with every single character just to advance her career by the end you know that's where she's progressed yeah she's sleeping with kit ramsey at the end she's sleeping with eddie murphy yes i love her opening line though right when she gets off the bus and she's wearing one of these like amish girl like dresses like she's straight out of ohio like i mean you know from like the farm country of ohio and she's holding a single suitcase not a rolly suitcase like one of these like 1930s like handle suitcases and she just gets off the bus and goes where do I go to be an actress? 
I love that line. It's it's very, very funny. I wanted to call out one line when Bowfinger is talking to uh, Carol, played by Christine Baranski, and she has reservations about the way that they're making this movie because she wants to meet Kit Ramsey, you know, famous actor, and they can't because he doesn't know he's in the movie, obviously. So Bowfinger is lying and saying like, oh, he just doesn't want to know that the cameras are there. And he refers to it as Cinema Nouveau. And that made me laugh out loud because when I worked on a certain shitty reality show, they referred to certain scenes as cinema verite, which I know you speak French, James, not hard to translate, truth in cinema. And that makes it sound really like important and like real. And cinema verite is a thing, like you see that in documentaries, but they used it on this shitty reality show about these shitty scenes that were completely fucking staged and they would call it verite. And so like if you give something a French name, it just sounds really fancy and it sounds like you're doing something important. But the cinema nouveau in this movie and the cinema verite on that reality show, it was all bullshit. It's like calling a country the Democratic Republic of something. It's always a non-democratic country. It's always a dictatorship. That's what's happening here. They call it Cinema Nouveau or Cinema Truth, and it's all BS. Like, it's not real. And you just see that Bowfinger is just a scammer, but he's an endearing scammer, and he does this to everybody, even the people that trust him. I think, in fact, the only person who knows that Kit Ramsey doesn't know he's in the film is that right-hand man, Dave, the camera guy. Right, played by Jamie Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like Steve Martin, the screenwriter, had a lot of fun like throwing in uh, little secret insults where, wherever he could. I think he's trying to say that some of the lead actors, they're crazy. Yeah, some of these guys, they'll flash the Laker girls and he gets to uh, thinly veiled uh, insult uh, Scientology in this film. Um, uh, I, I just want to point out uh, that that was James Brief who said that, that it's poking fun at Scientology. Not me, Alan Noah. I do not believe that Scientology is a cult. I think they are a real religion. I just want to make that very clear. I support that point. Okay. All right. Very good. When I say Xenu, you say... Uh, cool? You better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to, to your point... Mind, what is it called? Mind head? Mind head, yeah. Yeah, like in interviews, Steve Martin said that it wasn't necessarily Scientology because that is what you say. They sue literally everyone for anything. Yeah, I, I found the mind head stuff a little too goofy. Like they were wearing the pyramid hats. I thought that was a little over the top, but I mean, it really did establish two important parts about Kit Ramsey's character in that he thinks aliens are talking to him. Right. And he likes to flash the Laker girls because both of those are key components to moving the plot forward, especially the part where he thinks aliens are talking to him so that when people keep on running up to him in this film and saying aliens are after him, he loses his mind. And it is worth pointing out that Mindhead is telling Kit that aliens are not real, but in Scientology, they tell you that aliens are real. I don't agree with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> that statement that was uh, said by Alan Noah, uh, oh, no. that Scientology tells you that aliens are real. That is documented, right? I mean, Battlefield Earth, that's like the Scientology movie. It's about aliens, right? I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> I don't know. I just know that Scientology, man, maybe you should all check it out. I mean, it's, it's, this, is, this is great. I think you went the other way. I don't, <laughs> I'm definitely leaving. You know, I love uh, Jif, the the brother. We don't meet him till way into the movie. He's this soft-spoken guy who looks just like Kit. We learn in a great reveal later by Jif that he's uh, Kit Ramsey's brother. He just kind of says it. Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess I look like him. I mean, because he's my brother and all. Right after he praised the entire cast and crew for loving him and being the first people in his life not to use him for his brother. He has some great lines when he's uh, when he's auditioning. There's a part where he says, um, would you be willing to cut your hair? Because he has kind of a big uh, hair and he doesn't look like Kit Ramsey. And he goes, 
yeah, but I prefer when someone else cuts my hair. <laughs> it's just such a great line delivered by Eddie Murphy. It's so right out of Naked Gun, which is one of the movies I previously did on the podcast, in case you weren't aware. That's true. <laughs> and that was also one of the jokes that was in the trailer and does not hit well because it's kind of a a lame joke. I, I really feel like, damn it, that trailer put some of the funniest lines in the film uh, out of context. I think if you do the trailer again, what you do is focus on the fact that Kit Ramsey's in a movie he doesn't know. You don't say anything about his brother, Jif, because he doesn't get revealed, like you said, till well into the movie, and he turns out to be a really funny character. That could be the thing, like, hey, did you see this movie? Yeah, it had this surprise reveal where... Eddie Murphy plays a second character who is absolutely hilarious. The brother's not needed for the trailer. Eddie Murphy is hysterical when he's just screaming, the aliens are out to get me, gotcha suckers! <laughs> like, there's a lot of funny lines that he's saying if you understand the context of this guy has no idea he's being chased. And it's incredibly simple to explain in one line. Yeah. My absolute favorite part with Jif, because um, after they learn... Uh, that he is Kit Ramsey's brother. Bobby Bowfinger needs him to find out where Kit Ramsey is because the whole premise of the movie is that they have to find out where Kit Ramsey is and secretly film him, but he disappears. So they find out Jif knows, you know, knows him because he's his brother. And Jif has established that he really loves running errands. That's what he's good at. That's what he thinks his career will be. So Steve Martin in his classic smarmy but endearing self says, we have an important errand for you to run. You need to go to Starbucks and get a bunch of coffees. And then you need to find out where your brother's going to be, when he's going to be there. And then you need to go to the stationery store, get a bunch of pencils, and make sure they're sharpened. I actually still use that line whenever I want to give anybody a minuscule, ridiculous task. I'm like, all right, I'm going to need you to get some pencils. I'm going to need you to get them sharpened. And he just is like, so happy to do it. It's like, great. Get the coffee. Find out where my brother is. Get the pencils. And he's a happy camper. That's hilarious that you say that to people i like what people need to get pencils i mostly say it to my wife and my kids who have no idea what i'm talking about figure it's a simpsons reference and just smile at me politely fine that works also i feel like that's like a technique right like they call it the sandwich where like if you want to like critique somebody you give them a compliment then the critique then another compliment so like it just is easier to absorb the first thing and the third thing don't really matter. It's the second thing. Of course, yeah. So that's basically what he's doing, except with errands. Yes, it's perfect. Uh, yeah, they successfully film basically the entire film, except for the last line. They basically have Kit Ramsey running uh, successfully with Heather Graham's character, who now is in on it because she slept with uh, Jamie Kennedy now. Yep. Um, she has a great line, by the way. Once Bowfinger realizes that she's now sleeping with Jif, he's like, well, we're totally broken up. And she goes, what? I just slept with uh, Jif. And she's like, so what? Who cares? And... Uh, James oh, you, you, yeah, you, you definitely James uh, that last time. Al, do you want to do the line with me? Damn it. <laughs> We're totally breaking up. Why? Because you slept with Jif. So? I didn't think of it that way. <laughs> yeah, we, we nailed it. You know what? Honestly, that's also kind of like a naked gun style joke, right? Absolutely. Yep. And, and it works. It works really well. It shouldn't work, but it does. And yeah, Steve Martin's great at that kind of thing. Right, and uh, Kit thinks aliens are chasing them. I think it's like the Los Angeles Observatory that, that, that they're at. The famous Griffin Observatory. Right, mm -hmm. right, the Griffin Observatory. Um, and they get him to the top, and he has his hands leaned out. They have the perfect shot on him. Daisy, she says, you gotta yell, gotcha, suckers, because that's the catchphrase of the film. Kit just, he's so confused, and they're like, just say, gotcha, suckers. And just before he's gonna say it, that's when the uh, Mindhead uh, people, they, they come in their helicopters and they basically put a stop to the whole production. It's Griffith Observatory, not Griffin. Great. Now we're going to get sued by them too. Probably. But the thing about gotcha suckers is that like Bowfinger is convinced that that is just perfect. That is all <laughs> you need for an action movie to be successful is like that one catchphrase and Kit is saying something like, you know, Schwarzenegger gets hasta la vista, baby. Why don't I ever get a line that good? And gotcha suckers is that good. And I 
felt vindicated by like my things about voiceover. I also feel vindicated by this movie's take on action movies, which is that they're pointless, they're stupid, all you need is just people running around back and forth and then a brilliant, with air quotes, catchphrase like gotcha suckas and that's it. That's all you need to have a smash hit action movie. Bowfinger literally says at one point like, well, what's going to happen when we just run up to him and say our lines? And he's like, it doesn't matter what he says. It's an action movie. That dialogue doesn't matter. And, you know, yeah, that's a valid critique. It doesn't matter. Whatever they get will be good enough. I do think that, like, some of the stuff that they're filming with their hidden camera technique, it's just not going to work. When they're in Griffith Observatory and they're filming the security monitors, right. like that that's going to look like shit. You know, that's not going to play on a big screen. I mean, it's for a quick flash to the security camera, I guess, but you don't film the screen. You'd have to get the footage. Maybe the raw footage might look good in that effect, but I was thinking the same thing. To their credit, you kind of have to suspend belief. Like, you know it's not going to work, but they do show one scene, the garage scene, where they film Kit Ramsey walking through a darkened garage, and they have Bowfinger's dog click-clacking in the high heels, and they show what it looks like with his scene, and then they show... Carol, uh, Christine Baranci's character, they cut that together and they actually make it look pretty convincing. The rest of the scenes, I agree, they're not, they're not going to look right. Right. Well, that's exactly my point. Like with editing, you can do a lot and you can make magic happen to a point. Like there is, there's just a thing that people say sometimes of like, oh, we'll just fix it in post. And like, yeah, sometimes you can but other times you can't. And if you have just shit footage, you can't fix that. This sounds like a thinly veiled criticism of James. <laughs> Fixing things in post? No, this sounds like a thinly veiled criticism that one of your former like bosses or something. Honestly, it's not. It's just like a thing that people say just in general of like, oh, we got real crap, but uh, we'll edit it and fix it. Like there are limits. There are limits to what you can do in an editing room. The thing with the dog is a perfect example of how a scene can work, you know, with post-production. Right. And and once the gig is up, once Mindhead shuts down the production, everybody thinks the film is done. And then they kind of have a throwaway thing where uh, the cameramen who are illegal immigrants that they just tricked into being the cameramen have been following around Kit Ramsey just to get, I don't know, do you call that B-roll? Very good, Darren. That is exactly what you so call So I that. get to come back in eighth time. There you go. Well done. <laughs> so they've been getting B-roll footage of him just in case, as Bowfinger says, and they see him go to the Lakers game, put a brown paper bag on his head, and flash the Laker girls, which is, again is a callback to his Minehead uh, session earlier. Right, right. We should give credit to the leader of Minehead, who is played by Terrence Stamp, or as you and I know him best, I'm assuming, James, General Zod. Correct. Just, I'm going to quiz you. Do you know why they call it B-roll? Um, because it was filmed on the other side of the film. The A side and the B <laughs> side. <laughs> no, no. It's because A-roll will have audio and B-roll is just for visual. Um, but the film thing did make me laugh a little bit because... When Bowfinger steals Daisy's credit card, the first thing he does is use it to buy film. And film is notoriously expensive. And we know that from another uh, movie we saw with Heather Graham, Boogie Nights, when it's like they're shooting porn on film and that's really, really expensive. And then you can just shoot it on videotape and it's much cheaper. So that is a real thing. That film is very expensive. And you could kind of see that Bowfinger's broke. That would be the first thing he would buy. Okay, I didn't know that made sense. I mean, today, of course, they would have just filmed the whole thing digitally, so it wouldn't have been a problem. Exactly. And because of that, you could argue that this movie is almost like ahead of its time. I think that the whole hidden camera thing is easier to do now because you don't need to hide a big giant camera everyone's got a phone. You can get a million different angles. You can get all the coverage you need from just people standing there who are texting. No, 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 they're filming. You know, like that would be very, very easy to do now, easier than what you see in this movie. Yeah, there was this uh, uh, film that was filmed a couple of years ago in Disney World 
you're not allowed to film at Disney World. I'm sure if you have a permit, you can, I guess, if it's a Disney film, probably. But uh, these people just, uh, over the course of a couple of years, the uh, the cast, they would just come into the park over and over, and they would very, like, stealthy the uh, film. I assume it was probably on iPhones and stuff. Yeah, you need a permit to film, but you could be sneaky. The elephant in the room is that they are filming Kit without his permission, and they kind of pay that a little bit of lip service in the movie. Like, that should have been a bigger red flag of, like, even if you get all of the shots and even if you have everything you need and you try to release it, the lawyers are going to stop you pretty damn fast. And, you know, at the end of the movie, Bowfinger's like, well, I wish I had known that you needed consent to film somebody. Even as, like, a con man producer, he would know that. Yeah, I would have rather him just say... Oh, I was going to think of that later. He knows you can't do that. I wish he was just kind of like, I'll figure it out when we get it all together. I didn't buy that. I think he just had to suspend belief there. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, You know, in order to get the film actually made, they have to blackmail Kit for him to give his permission. Well, I think they more blackmail Mindhead. I'm not sure Kit has any awareness that he's being blackmailed because I think they blackmail Mindhead and Mindhead just tells Kit what to do. Right, which you could argue, well, that's not realistic. Shouldn't it be like his agents or managers or whatever? But I think, again, it's a thinly veiled swipe at Scientology of like, yeah, they're the real decision makers in Hollywood. If Scientology tells this Scientology follower what to do, he's going to do it. Like, that's who you have the meeting with. You don't bother talking to the manager or the agent or the the dweeby white guy who, you know, gets shot at earlier in the movie. You talk to the person with the real power, and that's the guy at Scientology. Sorry, Mindhead. This is like an SAT analogy. Mindhead is to Scientology as Miranda Priestly is to Anna Wintour. It's not the real thing. But it really is. Oh, I listened to that episode. See, there you go. Then you understood that reference. So, Darren, let me ask you, do you think that Bowfinger stands the test of time? Well, I was, again, a little nervous about this episode, just like when we did Naked Gun, because comedies can have a problem with their jokes not aging well. Um, And so I was pleasantly surprised. I definitely laughed out loud numerous times. I mean, we already highlighted, I think, all of the the lines and the deliveries that I found funny. I think what really makes this film still good today is Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy. And it's about how they deliver the lines, which is exactly why Naked Gun was still good. It's the comedy is ageless um, and it's really driven by these two individuals, especially Steve Martin, the way he delivers his lines and, and his just charming kind of endearing character. He's still a slime ball, but you're rooting for him. Um, There's little things that don't stand the test of time that I didn't like. Obviously, they have to rework that whole meeting with the car phone dangling out of the thing. It's easy to fix. Sure. And I just didn't love the ending with the ridiculous, oh, we got another offer to film in Taiwan, and here's this cheesy kung fu movie, especially since they put it in the trailer eight times. Uh, Other than that, I I just wish it was a little different of an ending, not like a big Hollywood premiere. But I I think the comedy hits. Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy are great. Um, Both of Eddie Murphy's characters are great. And I really enjoyed it. I was pleasantly surprised. I definitely laughed out loud and I was really having a good time. So... Uh, Yes, it stands the test of time. All right. For the seventh time, you have given your verdict. Oh, do I say every time so far that it stands the test of time? I will check right now. Let's see. Yes to The Rock. Obviously. Yes to Rounders. Okay. Yes to The Naked Gun, colon, from the files of Police Squad. (laughs) Yes to White Men Can't Jump. Yes to 8 Mile. Yes to The Saint. Yes, you have said yes to every movie you've, you've done on the podcast. <laughs> so I guess my opinion is losing its weight. Next time, I'm going to come on and do a movie that you suggest. No, 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 that's not how it works. Um, next, I'm going to come on to do a movie that you really like so I can shit on it. <laughs> oh, ouch, shots fired. All right, well, James, what do you think about Bowfinger? Do you think it stands up? Um, let me ask you guys a question. In the universe of this film... I think that because they did every quote-unquote stupid thing that action films do, um, Chubby Rain, I think it's a big hit. What do you guys think? In the Bowfinger universe, is it a big hit? No. 
that's why I didn't like the ending. I didn't like that Jerry Renfro, the uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, is there. And it just seems contrived. It seems fake. It's obviously a terrible movie. It's like Mystery Science Theater. I mean, it's meant to be a terrible movie. It shouldn't be well regarded. So, no, I, I would say it's not. But is this Transformers, Dark of the Moon? Like, is this one of, like, the just generic ones that makes half a billion dollars? It's possible. Not because it's necessarily good. I think they're basically saying you can have crap as long as you have gotcha suckers, then it's going to be a hit. That's why I'm saying not is it a good film, but is it a hit in the Bowfinger universe? I think that's what they're implying. I think that's what you're supposed to get from the applause that they get at the premiere, which you could argue that applause at a premiere doesn't really mean anything because they're friends and family. It's not like applause at a film festival, which carries more weight. But I think that's what the movie is trying to say, is that, yes, this will be another huge smash hit for Kit. Yeah, and I think mostly because Robert Downey Jr.'s character has one more part in the film, and he's in the audience, and he gives, like, an approving nod. So I think that the film does become a hit. Um, I agree with you, Darren. I never really uh, thought about it. Well, I've only seen the film twice. But... The film probably should have ended there. Maybe even, uh, you know, Daisy walking out with Kit and everyone pretty much wins at the end. I think it pretty much should have ended with the uh, FedEx guy just showing up and handing him uh, an envelope. Mm-hmm. Though it should have been thicker. I thought it would contain a script. And, yeah, the film at the end, Bowfinger doesn't do a film with uh, Kit Ramsey. It's Bowfinger himself starring in a film with Jif Ramsey. And they have not established that, A, Bowfinger's an actor that the audience knows, B, that the audience found out about Jif. I like the fact that it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, it's totally low budget and Jif is totally scared while he's doing his martial arts scene. Eddie Murphy is just awesome in it. There's a final freeze frame where uh, Steve Martin and, uh, and Eddie Murphy as Jif, you know, they're like older guys and they're trying to like do a karate jump in the air. And it's so lame and it's a very funny still shot to end. But yeah, I would have fixed the ending. But other than that, I think the film is just very clever. It's a, it's a tight premise, marketed horribly. Um, maybe the whole, like, the restaurant, like, how he gets a greenlit doesn't work as well as it could have. Just, I think it works well enough. You said it before, Darren. You got to suspend belief. Like, yeah, they even show that there's, like, leaves in the way of their hidden camera shots. And there's only one still camera for most of these shots. So, you're right, Al. It would not work as a film unless, you know, they uh, are able to get all that B-roll and do a lot of other stuff by themselves. However, it's just a really funny, tight film that works. And Darren, I now agree with you six out of seven times. I still remember The Saint. That's right. Al is fewer than six out of seven. But we'll even see if he agrees with you on this one. I thought it stood the test of time. Darren thought it stood the test of time. Does Alan thinks it stands the test of time? Absolutely. This was a very, very, very funny movie. I really enjoyed it. This was a great pick by you, Darren, and Mailer, I guess. Yeah, I I really enjoyed this movie. I think everything about it stands the test of time. The humor stands the test of time. The satire of Hollywood, of con artist producers, of people stabbing each other in the back to make a movie. Sure, but also just that can be applied to anything really you know people who will step on others just to to get what they want i agree with what you said james it is very clever it's smart even when it's silly it's still smart and i really really enjoyed watching this movie it a hundred percent stands the test of time there's a couple of jokes that are like maybe a little culturally insensitive the movie in taiwan kind of ends with uh christine baranski kind of saying some you know, gibberish, which is supposed to be Chinese. That's just not funny. The gag where they pick up the crew members like at the border and they're getting shot at, that doesn't really read as funny today. I think that's also maybe like a Southern California thing where you see immigrants like at Home Depot there and people just pick them up to do odd jobs. I think that's kind of the joke that they're making. I don't think they completely nail it. But then those guys then become like really serious filmmakers and they start talking about Citizen Kane and Godfather and, you know, they're opening the aperture on the camera to get the perfect shot for the B-roll. And that is really funny. 
It works on every level. Yes, this movie definitely stands the test of time. Good pick, Darren. Well, thank you. Did you notice in the trivia who was uh, slated to play uh, Kit Ramsey's character originally? Yes, Keanu Reeves. That would have made this movie terrible. I I have to say, (laughs) no offense, sir. I know you're listening. (laughs) No way he would have pulled that off. I think he could have done a good job with it. I think it would have been very, very different. And I'm glad that Eddie Murphy is in this movie and Keanu Reeves has a million other great movies. Name three. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, uh, John Wick. You didn't mention The Matrix. (laughs) I I stand by my three. (laughs) Fair enough. I think he could have pulled it off. There is a film, I'm not sure if you saw it. It was on, I think, Netflix, Always Be My Maybe, with Ali Wong and Randall Park. That was a movie that I had on my list of movies to watch that we just never got around to watching. Keanu Reeves has a fantastic role in the film, and he plays an eccentric Keanu Reeves. And he plays a complete Hollywood version. You know, Keanu Reeves is known to be such a nice guy and he's not going to be like a douchebag. But he's like, you're alpha male, Keanu Reeves. And it's very, very funny. And I think had he played a role like that and been like both, uh, you know, Hollywood big shot and, uh, you know, uh, scaredy cat, I, I think he could have done it. Uh, Keanu Reeves has surprised me in some of his roles. Interesting. I didn't know I walked into a Keanu Reeves fan club. (laughs) It's honestly more of an appreciation society. Well, Darren, thank you for coming back on the show. It was fun doing it remotely, but it is way more fun having you in person. Absolutely. This was a blast. Um, Where is my seven timers gift? There is no such thing. And I think we are also going to have to make a rule that there's no like 10 timers gift or anything because a lot of people are approaching that number and I just like I'm not made out of hoodies here. (laughs) I don't even understand the point of being on this podcast anymore. Whoa, it's not about the merch. It's about the quality time, Darren. Aw, you're right. Yay. Well, thank you for coming on. I look forward to you coming back on for the eighth time when you can forget more of the movies that you've talked to us about (laughs) and we can give you shit for it. It'll be a great time. Looking forward to it. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to talk about Little Giants. The Super Bowl is coming up. And so we're going to talk about Rick Moranis coaching little kids. And the annexation of Puerto Rico. Right, 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 right. That's the thing in that movie. I figured you would be excited to watch that movie. Did I figure correctly? It's a mid-90s sports formula film with kids. So you love it? Oh, I I love those films. I haven't seen that film in at least 20 years. All right, well, that'll be a good one to revisit. You don't want to miss that episode. And to make sure that you don't miss that episode, make sure you subscribe on whatever podcast provider you listen to us on. Hit that like button, subscribe, follow, whatever they tell you to do, just do it. Also, follow Board Games Are For Losers, co-hosted by our friend Darren here. Yay, and make sure you rate and review this podcast, especially any of the guest hosts particularly like like me you, you don't have to mention darren in your reviews but that you know that's fine and if anyone wants to uh sue anyone from this episode where should they address the complaints to at james Brief. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes all notices from lawyers should be addressed to james Brief, care of the test of time care of board games are for me. <laughs> and we will see you next time everybody bye bye